Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. Hello from Pitch List. Chris Lindsay here with a brand new episode. Our guest today is the fabulous singer-songwriter Gretchen Peters. Besides a constant output of her own records, Gretchen has written hits for many, many country artists, including George Strait, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, Shania Twain, Be Still My Heart, and many, many more. She has released nine studio albums herself, including her latest, a tribute to one of her musical heroes, the enigmatic Mickey Newberry. Her new record is called The Night You Wrote That Song, The Songs of Mickey Newberry, and you owe it to yourself to check it out. She lifts Mickey's already transcendent songs to another level. We talked about Gretchen's process and about her formative years in Colorado. She has a great story, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Gretchen Peters. Good afternoon. How's everybody out in Pitchless land? We've got a great, great interview today. I'm really excited about it. I've been excited all week. We have the fabulous, the wonderful Gretchen Peters here today. How are you, Gretchen? I'm great. It's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere at this point. Yes, it is. Where are you now? Are you in Nashville? Or are you? I'm, I'm in home in Nashville now. I've all been right. home since June. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's it. So no touring, right? Nobody's out playing gigs, nothing, huh? No touring. We, we're, we're out of commission for the rest of the year, and we've got some rescheduled dates next year, but who knows, really? We were supposed to be uh, on tour for a month in the, Euro- in the UK and Europe in May of this year. Mm-hmm. That got moved to February of next year, and it's already been moved to June of next year. And, you know, we're hoping that 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 holds but you know it's it's just it's we're all in the same boat we're just we have no idea what's going to happen and um you know we're not going to go out there until we know that we can be safe and that everybody in the audience can be safe so it could it could be a while yeah i didn't even really i I tour a lot but and i won't lie there was something about having the downtime that i really enjoyed but also i really, really came to realize how much I love it and how much I miss it. Um, I, I think there's just, you know, we, we are all being asked to, to grant everyone else and ourselves a lot of grace in adjusting to all of this. And, um, you know, I, I think I'm just like everybody else in that I've been up and down the, the roller coaster of emotions over it. Um, some of it I've really enjoyed. Um, but then there's, there's, there's a, to my husband the other day, you know, I, for most of this five months, I haven't been able to focus, you know, with all this so-called free time, I I haven't been able to focus very well on anything like writing or, or recording or anything like that. I just have, I feel really um, lucky that I was able to give, let myself off the hook and not uh, feel guilty about not being more productive. That is so crazy. You just said that because I was talking to one of my kids yesterday 
about the exact same thing of me thinking to myself, wow, you know, we sort of hit a pause button. So it would be a great time for me to work on some new projects I had and all this stuff. And then something, but it's been difficult for me too. Like you have this time, but there's something, I don't know. I, I've had the same exact experience as you. Well, I think we're, we're in what I heard somebody call a slow motion emergency. And, and just because it's a slow motion emergency doesn't mean that you don't have the same response to a disaster that happens like an earthquake or something that happens all at once. You still have that same, uh, you know, sort of fight or flight, you know, we're, we're all still, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? You can't plan anything. And it's, it's like I said, I think we all owe ourselves a, a bit of grace in, just dealing with this emotionally because nothing has ever happened like this in any of our lifetimes. It is. That's great, great advice. I'm glad we talked about that. I do need to give myself permission. We all do. We need, we need to do that because almost every time I go to Target with everyone wearing the masks, I just think it's, it's like a sci-fi movie. I just yeah. wouldn't have, do you know what I mean? When I was a kid, I wouldn't, it's just like, wow, it's like a pandemic virus movie, but it's, it's real. It's and I and I still have I, I had them I had these these nights more often in the beginning, but I still occasionally will wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh my God, is this is this really happening? Um, and you know, as as regards the writing creative part of it, um, I've thought a lot about this. I, I'm the kind of writer that really has to process things before I write about them. I mean, I don't just spit out, you know, have an experience and then write about it immediately. There's a lot of sort of internal underground work that has to go on with me before I can even write about something in any kind of coherent way. And so I'm sure that all of this is is down there somewhere, you know, marinating, but I, I haven't been able to um, to even think about I'm sure there are people somewhere who are writing about this experience right now because they they are made differently and they process it all faster. Uh, for me, I, I don't think it'll, I think it'll be a good number of years before I can really um, think about this and think about what I want to say about it. It's just a, such a huge, huge sea change in all of our lives. It is. And I'm interested about that, that you just, the, the thing you just said about your marination process. Is that typical for you on, on some of the big songs that you've had, some of the incredible songs that you've had? Do you, have, do you think about them a, a while before you actually write them or how does that work for you? I'm very slow. I'm very, very slow. Um, I, I have this sort of sense that the song just, gets written when it needs to be written and it may, you know, I may start it or, or have the seed of an idea a year or two years or three years before I finish it. Sometimes it's just, sometimes I'm not ready to write it uh, for whatever reason. I haven't lived enough. I, I, I'm not in the right frame of mind. I don't know what it is, but I generally just try to, to listen to the wisdom that the song has about, um, you know, telling me when it's, when, when I'm ready to, to work on it. So the result of that, this is why I'm such a lousy co-writer because I'm, I'm very slow and I, I can't like, it's very rare that I would sit down in an afternoon and write a song either alone or with somebody. 
um, I have to think about it. I have to put it away. There's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of putting it away and forgetting about it and then revisiting it a week or a month or six months later and looking at it. And it tells me six months later, looking at a lyric that I've written um, tells me a whole lot, lot more about what's really going on in there. In other words, I'm, I can see it better if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, Stephen King has a memoir called On Writing. Which I love is, that book. Oh my God, that's the best one. It's the best that's one. Of, great book. About yeah. writing for, you know, fiction or what really any writing, but that's any his writing. technique. He, he puts it up for six months, puts it away, and then he pulls it back out. Yeah, it's, there's something about, and because I think the thing about writing is it's really, people call it an act of self-expression, but Really, I think it's more an act of self-discovery. You know, you're, you're really writing to find out what you think or find out what your questions are. And so if you put something away for a good long period of time and you get it out with the eyes and the brain and the heart that you have, say, six months later, and you look at it, you're going you're gonna to see a lot more in there. You're going you're gonna to see a lot more than what you thought you were writing. I mean, I think all of us who write or create have had the experience of, I mean, I know I've had the experience of singing a song that I wrote years ago. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, I, I discover a whole other meaning that, that I didn't even realize was in there. So I think that they kind of constantly develop and the more time you can spend, um, you know, letting that happen, the better the song is usually. So, and I know you couldn't put a number on it, but I'm just curious. Um, if you, in a typical year for you, uh, a non-pandemic year, just a typical year, <laughs> how, how many songs do you think you would finish in a, in a normal year? Not very many, 12, maybe 10, 12 songs. Okay. Uh, mostly in the last six, seven, eight years, I've been writing just for my own records. So I tend to, I tend to write, um, in a kind of a binge, you know, I tend to, I collect ideas constantly, but I tend to sort of sit down and flesh them out um, in, in, in chunks of time. Most of that was because I was touring so much. I, I kind of had to do that. I just had to set aside, here's three weeks here. I'm just going to write, you know, that sort of thing. But um, I found that my output was actually the same when I did that, as it was back in the day when I, uh, you know, before I had my first record deal, it was, it really didn't change that much. And I was writing every day then, but I still, that was about what I could do. Um, I wasn't super prolific, but I would say that my, my batting average was high. I didn't, I wrote yeah. maybe 10, 12 songs, but they were all songs I felt really good about. Um, Listen, if anybody can get one great song a year out of this town, you're doing, you're ahead. I mean, I agree with you on the, I've had, you know, anyway, but times when I wrote more songs than less, but you, do, you don't need but one or two hits a year to be doing just fine. You know, you don't need 60 songs, but everyone's process is different. Some people, it is. It some is. people like to swing, 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 swing. And then, you know, but I think most of the people like you who are more artists, in my opinion, I'm asking, but more artist driven. Like you make your records and then people find those songs and may want to cover them yeah. versus, Hey, Hey, will you, you know, I wrote a song where you cut it, you know, is that true about you? Is it? Yeah, I don't because I, I think because, well, for a number of reasons, but 
the way I saw myself as a very young songwriter, you know, before I even moved to Nashville, the way I saw myself was based on what my heroes did, which is Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, uh, Leonard Cohen. They were, they were artists. They did, they wrote, they performed, they sang, they, you know, other people did their songs, all of it. And I, that was what I really wanted. In fact, when I moved to Nashville, I really was not completely aware that, that you could just write songs and that was it. I mean, I sort of was, but I didn't really realize it was such a uh, big part of the, of the music business here. So I've always come at it from that point. But I think the bigger truth for me is that I don't, I, when I first came to town, you know, of course, like everybody, I was hungry and I, I just wanted something to happen. And I tried to write songs for artists, you know, that sounded like something that they would record. And I just was terrible at it. Nobody wanted those songs. Nobody cared. And as I, because I had a wonderful publisher that, who knew sort of who could see me struggling with that. Um, the odd song that I would write just for myself, he, he, he would pick up on that and he would say, do more of that. And I think that uh, that was invaluable to me because um, it was just validation that, that writing for myself was my superpower, you know, that, that, that other artists would want to cut those songs that I wrote for myself. And that's the way it works for me. Now, other people are fantastic at sort of aiming at something, aiming at a target like another artist. I've just never had any knack for that at all. I think there's, I think it's very important what you said for, for younger writers listening. You got your best shot with your best work. Whatever it takes, you know, and a great publisher like you had, this is what I fear we may be starting to miss in Nashville. Think about how critical it is to have that person in your life when you start that can help guide you the right place or, or could the wrong place, you know, and you it's, know, huge. It, that it's is, huge. That is huge. For me, it was, I, I think often about, you know, what if I had been in some other kind of a situation with someone who pressured me to co-write more, which I was so awkward and uncomfortable with, you know, and this, this man, um, said, you know, the songs you write by yourself are better. Just do that. It's fine. You know, if yeah. I, I hadn't had that, I, I wonder, um, I wonder how it would have gone for me, really. I know. And I know lots of careers like that. And I, I really hope that we maintain that in the business. People that are great publishers, great pluggers. Well, and there's, you know, there's the thing, there's the thing that, that we've all heard, which is, you know, did that song need to be written? And you can feel a song that needed to be written. And that's what every young writer, I think, should be going for. Not, you know, does so-and-so need, will they cut my song? But does this song have a reason to be born? Uh, is there something inside of me that, that needs to say it? And I think that's why, for me, when the whole thing, when it gets tough, I just kind of go back to the basics and I think, you know, I've basically been doing the same thing since I was 17, 18 years old, sitting on my bed with my guitar and making myself cry. And if I can do that, then I know there's something in that song. There's that, is, something. that is such great advice, Gretchen, because that's it. That's it. That's the whole, that's the whole deal right there. It's not any more complicated than that, in my opinion. That's it. Right, right. 
It's about communicating your emotion and your experience to a listener and having it resonate. And the easiest way to have it resonate with them is that have it resonate with you. That's exactly the thing. I think we, we t- it's easy, especially when you're starting out to, um, to overthink it yep. and think that, you know, if something uh, moves you, it might just be you. Maybe it won't move other people, but we are all so much more alike than we are different. And if it moves you, the chances are very great that it's, it's going to move other people too. Yes. Well, before we go too far down that, I want to... So in preparation for your interview, I got into this new record you've got with the Mickey Newberry songs. Oh, really? Thanks. Okay. So here's the thing. I was aware of Mickey Newberry because uh, I used to work with Leslie Satcher some and she Mm -hmm. loved Mickey and she loved him. And I, so I was aware and I've been here. I mean, she's a Texas girl, right? Yes, she is. And um, everybody in Texas knows Mickey. yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I was aware, but first of all, first of all, your record is just beautiful. Thank you. Just, I mean, stunning. I, that, that track, the first one, um, let me get my notes out here because I loved it all. But the night you wrote that song, mm. that, that, that cut of that song is special. Oh, thank you. I so think much. it's so beautiful and so haunting and I love it all and I love him. And I, I, so I've been for a day and a half digging into Mickey Newberry and all his trials and tribulations and, and the recordings and everything. So my question to you is, have you, were you a fan of him forever or did you find him or what was, why, why did you record a record of his songs? I was in, I think my first year of college in Boulder, Colorado, I was just a, you know, a bolder hippie. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I spent last half of my childhood there, went to high school and college there. And I was not raised on country music. So it was a discovery for me. Um, I kind of came at it through the back door, you know, through, through the country rock bands, the kind of hippie bands, like the nitty gritty dirt band through, um, Oh gosh, Michael Martin Murphy, um, the birds, Flying Burrito Brothers, all of that. So, but I started, I think mostly because I started seeing the credits on those albums. Those They were real Nashville writers. And I started getting curious about, you know, who those people were and what those records sounded like. And I found this friend who worked at a used record store in Boulder and he had lived in Nashville. And he started just shoving records into my arms. Just go, go home, kid, and listen to this, you know. And one of the records that I got from him was a Mickey Newberry album, a solo album. Probably Looks Like Rain. It was one of those early, late, late 60s, early 70s records. And I was just floored. I was floored, honestly, first by his voice, um, which was stunning, couldn't figure out why he wasn't a huge star. I mean, just the singer, just as a singer, he was amazing. But then I just, I think I realized a kindred spirit. I felt like, because I loved sad songs. I mean, I loved all the really, the real weepers. Those were my favorites. So I just started collecting his records. So I, you know, I was a teenager. I was in my late teens. I discovered him early. 
And my mom and I, I lived uh, in Boulder with my mom. She was divorced and she fell in love with his music too. And for years later, she would say, um, I'd love to hear you sing an album of Mickey Newberry songs. And I was busy doing my own thing. And I was like, yeah, that would be, that would be fun. But I didn't really think about it because I had things I wanted to do. I had records I wanted to make. And years and years and years later, um, her words just kind of echoed in my head. And I thought, you know, I do want to do that. I think I do because partly because of what you just said. Um, I love the fact that so many people are diving into Mickey Newberry's records now because they, I mean, a lot of my fans had never heard of him. A lot, lot, whole bunch of folks in England, which is, you know, the UK is really my, by far my biggest audience, um, really had not heard of him. He hadn't toured there much. And they're discovering these beautiful, crazy, poetic, gorgeous albums of his. And I just love that. I, I really wanted to share it with people. Well, you have a passion for it and it comes across. And I just think the the covers you're doing, they're they're just alive. And I I I love it. I mean, I've been listening for for a couple of days now. I just I love it. And I love I love his whole story. It just same thing happened to me. It it made me dig into him. And the last thing I listened to, there was an orchestral version of a song he did called The Sailor. Yes. Yeah. Oh my, it made me cry. It's incredible. It's that, that song, that's the first cut on my record. Right. And that's right. I, I think um, there's a line in that song that just breaks my heart. Mickey, Mickey played around with words a lot. Like you'll hear live versions and he'll change the lyrics up all the time. Um, but, but the version that I first heard, there's a line that said, uh, it, it goes, my, my daddy was a sailor. The salt is in my blood, and here I am in Nashville, bow deep in this mud. And I, every, wow. I, I get chills every time I think about that line. And I think it says so much about who he was as an artist. He was always trying to find his way out of the mud. I think he felt that Nashville, while it gave him so many blessings as a songwriter, it also constrained him a lot. And he struggled with that. And I, I, there was just a lot that I really related to. Yeah, there was a great line I was reading about him. Um, because a lot of people see him, from my interpretation, as the beginning of the outlaw movement. You know, a very I, like the first well, outlaw. He, he brought Towns Van Zandt to town. I mean, he, he, yeah. really, he really was. And I think if you ask, if you were able to ask those people, living and dead, you know, uh, Guy Clark and uh, Chris Christopherson and, 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 and all of those people and Waylon, you know, Waylon was a huge Newberry fan. You know, who was, who were your biggest influences? I think Newberry would come up in just about every single case. Yeah, that's what I read. And then the interesting thing was, I guess he wasn't really participating when it became so big as a fad, the outlaw movement. And in an interview, he said, uh, I told them, um, I told those guys, you know, I quit playing cowboy when I was a kid. He was not a joiner. And I love that. It's like yeah. this guy starts the outlaw movement. And then when they're asking him, basically, Whalen or somebody's like, why aren't you cashing in on this? He's like, I, I don't play cowboys and Indians. I'm a grown man. Yeah, and, he, he, he was not wow. a joiner. And I think he was, I think he, whichever way the crowd was going, he was 
going to go the other way, you know, and I, I kind of love that about him, but I think it, I think it cost him career wise for sure. But, you know, he did, there, again, there was so much about his really even his career path that I felt a kinship with. I mean, he, he had huge success as a songwriter. He kept making these records for very idiosyncratic, very Mickey, you know, nobody else could have made them. They, they were his vision. None of, none of them sold particularly well. Um, but he kept on following his path and he changed. He, he, he really became to the ear, what sounds a lot more like a folk artist in the, in the later part of his career. Um, the records were very folky and cello and, you know, violin and things like that. He just did what he did and you know consequences be damned and i i love that about him and i related to um i related to the sort of way his career unfolded because there are a lot of similarities to to his and mine in that regard i love it i love your recordings of them i think i think people are going to go nuts it was such a labor of love and, it, and just the fact that it's been re- received so well I, I i really had no idea i mean i I, I just thought I'm going to do this and I have no idea if anybody's going to care, you know, um, but those are the happy accidents that this whole business is, you know, made of, really. Don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. And now please enjoy Gretchen's exclusive at-home performance of her song, on a bus to St. Cloud, originally recorded by Tricia Yearwood and written solo by Gretchen. Church in downtown. 
You know, I have a funny story. Um, when I told my wife, Amy, that I was interviewing you for Pitch List, she told me a funny story. You know, so this was probably 20 years ago or 18. Uh, there were very few female songwriters in Nashville. Yeah. She was brand new. Hillary Lindsay was brand new. And Amy and Hillary are very tight. And they adore, worshiped you. Okay. But since, like I was just telling Dana, since you write on your own and you really don't co-write, you, was all, you were always very much an enigma around town. So there was all kind of talk about who you were and what you were like. And of course, they all wanted to write with you, but they knew that you didn't. And uh, so you, you, those girls loved you. There was an old thing they used to do called EMI hot dog days. Do you remember those? I do, yeah. So for people listening, uh, EMI on Music Row, uh, threw a big party in their parking lot and they called it hot dog day and they just served hot dogs and everybody in town took a break from their riding and came over there. It was just a thing everybody did every year. They saw you come driving into hot dog day and Amy, I think, uh, was driving. She pulled in and parked behind your car, <laughs> watched you go in with the intention that you'd have to get her to let her to let you out so uh -huh. she could meet you. Can you believe that? Oh my God. Really? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause they, they wanted to, uh, she wanted to, uh, she wanted to meet you. 
you're a big hero to her and a lot of those girls. I um, have to say that my, my um, awkwardness and, and uncomfortableness with co-writing cost me, um, it took me a lot longer to make those friendships because naturally if you're co-writing, you know, like, like the way this town really is for most writers, there's, you know, that's how you make your friends and meet other people. And, you know, and I spent so much time holed up in my room all by myself that, you know, for instance, Matresa Berg and I are dear, dear friends now, but it took some time for that to happen because we just didn't have a natural, you know, we didn't write together. We didn't right. have a natural place where we would come together and get to know each other. And so um, I, I felt a certain kind of, I don't want to say isolation, but I didn't feel as connected as I think a lot of people did because of that, um, because of, I, I did protect my, my solo writing mostly because I just feel so awkward in a co-writing situation, not because, not because I was shunning other people, but because I was no. like, you don't want to write with me. Promise. I promise you, you don't, you know? So it took me a long time to develop those friendships, but I value them so much because, um, you know, my friendships with Kim Ritchie and Matresa and Mary Gaucher and Susie Boggess, because that's, that's who ends up being your support system. That's who, you know, that's, those are your people that, that understand like to a cellular level, what you're, what you go through in the course of this career. And without those people, you know, God, I don't know. I don't know where I'd be. I mean, um, and it was a little harder for me to find them because of my tendency to be doing this all by myself all the time. Let me ask you this. So the Patty Loveless song, was that your, the, uh, you don't even know who I am. Was that your first country hit? No, actually my very first hit was um, a song called The Chill of an Early Fall by George Strait. Yes, that's right. That, yeah, that was in, I don't know, I guess the late eight, uh, it was either, you know, 89 or somewhere around there, 90, something like that. Um, um, it's funny you mentioned that you don't even know who I am, though, because that is the only song I, I just told somebody the other night. It's the only song I've sat down and written in one afternoon. Wow. I, mean, I, I normally take forever, but for some reason that one just came falling out. You know, they say here in town, that's like a song that makes you pull the car off the road, which is a cliche, but I actually pulled my truck off the road the first time I heard that song. I, <laughs> I literally whipped into a parking lot and just listened because that lyric and that whole song is just pure magic. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that song. I mean, that song just knocked me out when I heard it. It's so great. It's um, so great. I pulled up, I had to pull off the road the first time I heard it on the radio because even though I'd heard the, the record, there's something about Patty's voice. And that, I mean, to me, of all the songs that I've had recorded by other artists, the marriage of her voice and that song is maybe the most perfect marriage. It just seemed like it was made for her. Man, that that's a serious ass song, man. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> wow. And then Bust to St. Cloud. That's another one of those songs where you're just like, damn. That was, uh, that was a really, even though it was not a huge hit, Trisha Yearwood and I have, you know, she, she told me 
several years, actually quite a few years later after she recorded that, she said, I just keep singing it live because I love that song. And it didn't, you know, it wasn't a hit. It, they released it as a single and it didn't do well at all. But it became just, it was really proof to me that songs, they find their way out there. And even if it's a song that radio doesn't want to play for whatever reason, or it, it didn't, you know, climb the charts, sometimes people will find it anyway and they will cling to it because it means something to them. And it's, it, it, you know, years later ended up being probably the most requested song that I play live. Um, there's, a, there's another song that, that I wrote more recently called Five Minutes that is kind of tied with Bus St. Cloud in terms of that. But it also became one of my most recorded songs by a bunch of different artists. It's been recorded over and over again. So it, it was really good proof to me to just kind of not pay attention to the whole chart business because it doesn't really mean anything. You know, you, you get a, a song and it goes to number one and it's wonderful when that happens, it's a great feeling. And then a few weeks later, nobody even remembers, you know, what the number was. What they really will remember or, or not is the song. And in the case of that song, it never was a commercial success for anybody, but it it somehow worked its way into people's hearts, and that's it's a great lesson for a writer to learn that because you kind of you can kind of let go of the whole you know chart number yeah that we that we all you know get fixated on we do and radio has its own agendas and it's just a completely separate thing. It sometimes converges with what fans love and sometimes it doesn't. And, yeah. but it's its own little animal. And, uh, I agree with you a hundred percent. Those great songs like that find, they, they, they find their way in. And like you say, other people record them. I, um, I think about, I always think about gentle on my mind, you know, that, yeah. that, that didn't go to, it didn't, I don't think it even got into the top 40, uh, and everyone knows it. It's, yep. it's an iconic song of its time. So, yeah, it's good to always keep a little perspective like that. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious about something. When did you move to Boulder from Brooklyn? How, from Brooklyn? Um, you... Well, I was actually from, I moved from Westchester County, which only, okay. only makes sense to people who are from New York. <laughs> um, I moved as I was about to turn 13. I, my okay. parents got divorced a few years earlier. My mom was, you know, very much in that suburban New York. Uh, you know, if you've seen Mad Men, that I was that kid and my parents were those people, you know, kind of thing. That's where I lived. Um, that was our life. And she, as a divorced woman, she just, it, it was not a place. You, you didn't want to live in the suburbs in the late 60s if you weren't married. Um, she took me. And older, my older siblings were all gone at that point. She took me and we moved to Boulder, Colorado, pretty much almost sight unseen. Um, she told me later one of the reasons she, she wanted to move there was she knew that she could probably send me to college fairly cheaply because there was a university there. But I think she was also really attracted to how freewheeling and, and you know, how it, it, it was just a really wonderful time to be in Boulder in, I think we moved in 1970. Wow. Yeah. That's, and, that's uh, what I think. And that's why I wanted to ask you. I mean, well, two things, that's a huge, uh, cultural shift. Oh, there. 
It took me a couple of years before I, I was happy. I mean, I was I was really not a happy happy kid at that point. I actually even dropped out of school because I was just I was pretty miserable. I didn't want to leave New. You know, moving when you're in junior high is about the worst. It's just yeah. about the worst. but I will say that that unhappiness and my my kind of misery for those year or year and a half is what pushed me so hard into music and it it definitely shaped me because music was kind of saved my life i could at least go into my room and play my guitar and sing you know and I, you know the music scene i mean i think about sometimes what 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 would i have done had we not moved to boulder and i think i, I think if i had pursued music which i probably would have I would have gotten involved in the New York folk scene because I knew it was there. I was aware of it. I was just a little too young to be able to partake in it. Um, so that would have sent me in a really different direction. But because we moved to Colorado and there were all these country rock bands and there was yeah. this sort of more, that was more what was going on out there. Um, music, you, you got to remember, was much more local back then. You know, that what was happening in New York might not be what was happening in Boulder or, you know, Louisiana or wherever. And so uh, it, it definitely pushed me in this direction that ended up um, sending me to Nashville. Well, it all worked out for us because we got some great songs from you. <laughs> and so um, when do you think you'll record again? Do you have plans yet? Are you kind of ruminating about that? Or Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's, God, it's, it's just like, it, I, it's like Sisyphus rolling the stone uphill again every time, you know, gearing up to the process of writing. Um, I, I, I had this Mickey Newberry album that we talked about We're ready to go when this, it was, I had the release date planned for May when this whole pandemic thing happened. And luckily I also had another album, which I'm, just starting to work on mixes for, but it's a live album. It's a, it's a, it was live with a string quartet that we did in, on a tour in the UK. So that's actually going to be my next project is getting the mixes done um, for that project. And then beyond that, I, if, if there's another album in me, I'm going to have to write it first. And I have a few ideas, but that's, the, that's the big, uh, that that's the work. That's the the part I really dread. I'm I'm not a writer who said you know I hear writers sometimes say how much they love writing, and I think, what are you doing that you love it so much? Because that's funny. I, I find it really really excruciating. I feel an incredible sense, probably the deepest sense of accomplishment when I've done it, and I've done it. I feel like I've done it well, but it's not fun to me it's it's really hard and um so wow well wait we're gonna dig into that just a little bit now do you because i had another question um do you work off of titles do you get a title idea or do you have more of a concept or how does that work for you i i have both i love tight i love working off of a title if you know if the title is evocative enough um Obviously, I mean, if it's sort of generic, then there's nothing there for me. I, you know, but if it's a if it's a really evocative title, I love to work that way because I'm I'm 85% lyricist. I mean, I really, I you know, I grew up singing Bob Dylan songs. That when I first time I picked up a guitar, that's what I started to to play, and so I come from that school of you know, write a lyric and then shove a melody underneath it. I'm not I'm not one of these people that 
gets melody ideas all the time at all. I really have to work to, to make the melodies be more than generic. Um, so I work from titles and I love working from concepts too. I, I had a, a song uh, on my last album before the Newberry project, you know, my last written album um, called the boy from Rye. And I, I really wrote that song based on my initial impetus for writing it was strictly just an idea that I wanted to write about uh, what it was like to be a adolescent girl coming of age and starting to judge yourself and, and realize that you weren't the subject of your so much as the object of someone else's gaze. And, you know, I, I had this idea and I thought, God, got my work cut out for me. I mean, that's a big topic, but I love working that way because the thing about songwriting that's so beautiful and magical is that you, you have to condense it down to this tiny little world that, that comes and goes in the course of under five minutes. Um, and to take a big idea like that and condense it down is a, it's a huge challenge, but it's also a miraculous thing when you can do it, when you can make an entire world inside of a five minute song. It is. And you made me think about the Mickey Newberry song you covered, The Sailor. That yeah. lyric does that. It, the, I was watching a lyric video of it so you could see the lyrics printed and they're so simple. But, they are. But when you look at what's contained in each little couplet, I mean, it's like humanity in there and it's crazy. And it, and I think it is difficult to do that. And it's the haiku of, you know, of, of songwriting. It's, it's the, the reason why I love the song form so much is because of how miniature it is. And um, my, my father was a writer and he, he wrote, you know, long form books. He wrote nonfiction and he would work for, you know, two, three years on a book. And I have never for the life of me been able to conceive of writing something that long and spend, you know, uh, you know, focusing on nothing but that book, which is gonna be many hundreds of pages. Yeah. Um, I, I'm the opposite. I like to shrink it all the way down to its most essential elements. And I think that, you know, I go back over my lyrics over and over again and take words out as much as I can. Um, the more you can take out, the better. Um, and that to me is the magic of the song form. I think it's a more effective form of communication in some ways because you condense your thoughts and it's in a package that people can digest. Now that's not to yeah. say people clearly and myself included, and I know you too, we love great books. I think you said the right word. It just seems way more daunting to me. Um, Thank goodness we already have Tolstoy and you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. we already and, have people. we're great at yeah. that and are great at that. Well, let me ask you one other question. Cause I'm just curious. Um, you have worked with Brian Adams quite a bit through your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you it guys have written a lot. For a long time, that was my one exception to the co-writing. Um, I think you, that was a good idea to break your rule for him. <laughs> well, it was a whole other thing. It, 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 he, he, first of all, he, he really stuck with me in when I was, not very good at it when I wasn't very good at the free exchange, just throwing stuff back and forth. I think it's because I think it's because I've always felt like 
writing feels very personal and, and naked to me. And I feel like in another room with somebody, it's really hard to feel a level of comfort that you can do that. But, but he just kind of stuck with me and wouldn't give up on me for long enough that we developed this relationship, like really like brother and sister, like just, you know, anything goes, we'd throw anything at each other. We'd laugh a lot. It was, you know, the songs that we wrote are very different from the songs I write by myself. But for me, that was a way to stretch my, um, my, my chops, you know, my technical abilities. Um, because I really was writing with him. We really were writing for him. And that was kind of the only time I ever kind of thought about that. Like who's, who's going to be singing this song and what'll they want to say and what'll they sound like? So it was, it was good for me as an exercise. And I, I also had a lot of experiences that I never would have had. Like uh, we wrote all the music, all the, well, I mostly wrote lyrics, but we wrote songs for uh, a whole animated movie for yeah. Um I never would have had that opportunity had I not been writing with him. And it was an incredible learning experience. It made me a more disciplined writer. I had to go back and rewrite so many times that I tore my hair out, but it was good for me. It was really, really good. Well, and the, and the songs are amazing. It was... Um, you know, the songs in an animated movie are totally subservient to the movie, as they should be. You know, they, they serve the plot. They're not meant to be standalone. It's great if they are standalone songs, but, um, and that was just, that was such a, that was such good work to have to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, it's got to be inspiring to work with someone. I, I just personally, I think his voice is just incredible. I taught mean, me much about singing i and and not you know not intentionally but i sat next to him in the studio so sometimes he would just sing his vocals right there at the you know board you know i would sometimes he'd have headphones on sometimes i would take my headphones off and um listen to him singing in the room when i couldn't hear the track at all mm-hmm. and that voice which is so big and powerful he was singing at a whisper most of the time you're kidding no and i mean i i really realized that that where power comes from vocally is not it's not volume it's not how much air you push it's it's uh it's a life force that comes from inside you know because he doesn't sing very loud he never strains um yeah, I learned a lot about singing from him. It was it was really an eye opener. That is so interesting. Yeah, it's like completely counterintuitive to what you. He's such a big rock growly voice. Yep. You would think that that would be loud. But you know, tone happens when you're singing. I think tone happens when you open up and you're you can't if you're straining, you're you're kind of closing down really. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah, that was, there were just so many little things I picked up like that, just listening to him sing. And he's such a great, he's a world-class singer. Just Yeah, he is. Great, great he singer. truly is. Yeah. Well, I think I could talk to you for four hours, but I think uh, <laughs> I have one other thing. On our recent episodes, I've been doing a lightning round where okay. I just ask. So the lightning round is I'm just going to ask you six or seven yes or no, or either or questions about writing, just the nuts and bolts of writing. Okay. Are you up for it? And then you just give me your quick answer. Okay. So this is, 
uh, Gretchen Peters on songwriting. Here we go. Uh, guitar or piano? Piano. Track or instrument in the room? Instrument in the room. Notepad or iPhone? Can I say MacBook? Yes, MacBook. <laughs> That's, that, that, can, that works also. Uh, bridge or no bridge? No bridge. I'm a folky. Okay. Words <laughs> or music first? Words. Morning or evening writing session? Morning. Favorite writing snack? Oh, coffee. <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> that's the best answer so far that would be mine i'm gonna use that coffee and nicorette <laughs> i mean i'm sure i could write without caffeine but i wouldn't want to oh i don't know if i could really it's, i've always had a coffee machine in my writing room yeah always. yeah yeah well hey thank you so much for being on pitch list Thank you, Chris. It's been so much fun talking to you. It's been great talking to you. Like I said, I could talk to you for a couple more hours. <laughs> I'm just a huge fan of your work. Uh, and the new, the Mickey Newberry collection of songs, everybody listening, go get that. It is, it is so good. It is so good. I mean, there's something, I don't know if it's the time we're living in. Try not to oversell this, but <laughs> I don't know if it's the time we're living in. It just hit me like a ton of bricks, man. Oh, that just does my heart good to hear you say that. Thank you so much. Yeah, everyone do yourself a favor and go check that record out. It's so good. And dig into Mickey Newberry. What what a character, man. Oh, my God, yes, absolutely. What a guy. Underappreciated, just like I, you said. I envy people who have not discovered him the joy that they're going to get out of his songs and his records. They really are. Yeah, a true innovator like a, uh, his own man and just out on an obvious journey of discovery yep. you know, and walking away from a lot of treasure to do it. It's just, it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen. I hope we can have you on again. I just Thanks. love talking I would to you. Love it, Chris. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List. To hear songs written and or recorded by today's guest, check out this week's playlist by finding us on Spotify at Pitch List Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. To watch the song performances from this episode, visit PitchListPodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.